Hi, Sister Brunch listeners. Before we jump into this wonderful conversation with Tamar Kali, we wanted to let you know that we strive to produce this show with the highest quality possible for our audio. Unfortunately, we suffered some technical difficulties on our platform with this interview, so you may notice some sound issues, but please know that none of that takes away from Tamar Kali's brilliance. You do not want to miss the incredible insight that she shares. And thank you again so much for listening to Sister Brunch. Here we go. Welcome back to Sister Brunch, the podcast all about Black women thriving in entertainment and media. And we are now in our fourth season. We encourage you to listen back to our previous guests on Apple or Spotify podcasts, and also find ways to uplift and encourage these amazing women. And if you've got questions about the entertainment and media industries, we would love to hear your voice and your question. So now you can actually leave us a voicemail at 424-587-4870. And we may just ask your question or even play your beautiful voice on a future episode. I'm your host, Fanchon Cox, and today's guest is Tamar Kali. Tamar Kali is a Brooklyn-born and bred artist and a second-generation musician with roots in the coastal sea islands of South Carolina. In 2017, we know y'all already know who she is because she made her debut as a film composer scoring Dee Reese's Oscar-nominated Mudbound. And of course, that also garnered her lots of awards, including the World Soundtrack Academy's Discovery of the Year Award, and was also classified by IndieWire as one of the 25 best film scores in the 21st century. Now, 2019 was a hallmark year for her as she debuted her first symphonic commission and scored four films, three of which were featured at Sundance. And just this year, Tamar Kali unveiled a digital short commission with LA Opera titled We Hold These Truths, featuring imagery directed by Dream Hampton. Welcome to Markali. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, we are truly proud to have you on. We always like to start the podcast because this is really kind of an inspirational podcast for uh, women who want to enter into the industry or also for those who have been here, but they don't know about different roles. So will you take us back to the beginning of how you ended up becoming first, obviously, a, a musician and then a composer? Well, it would start with um, my father. My father was a bass player, and um, my first musical lessons were at home. There was, of course, just the ethnocultural traditions of spirituals and gospel and jazz, which I got to a little later. I, I was raised up Catholic, so um, my formative years singing in the world were done in a choral classical context but there was always music at home so in terms of you know singing out um in a a, a traditional or formalized environment that was called classical singing but of course there was music all around the house and parties um from back when I was just in a a forest of legs you know, dancing with the adults <laughs> at the parties yes, and singing yes. and, you know, or being um, put in the room with, with all the children, the children room, and then they'll 
bring you out to do a little dance and sing a little song <laughs> and then throw you back in there. Do you have video of that? Because you know we would love to use that in uh, to promote this episode. You know, I have my father, bless him, after his passing, I realized he was like truly my archivist and my first fan. He There's mm. so much, but I have to get things digitized. I mean, there is so much, um, you know, and he used to like, we used to tease him because I remember there was, there used to be a big technology um, electronics expo every year in New York at the Coliseum um, in Columbus Circle. And one year when they were introducing the karaoke machine in America, I'd sing, let's get physical. And my father <laughs> would lock people in the car and play it for them. It was just so out of control. Wait, now, did you, did you have the headband? No, no. But I did have on a, a velour sweater, though, yes. and some corduroy. <laughs> you know, so there is lots of, of footage, but um, it needs to be organized and digitized, and I don't think that I'm going to be doing it. Um, so, but yeah, it, start, it started there. And so, I mean, the whole thing with the f falling into film composition, it was really a, an artist-to-artist -artist relationship. I had worked with Dee on her first feature film, which had no score. It was just all diegetic music, so needle drops, you know, source music. And Oh, wait, wait, sorry. You said diegetic? That's a new Diegetic, D-I-E-G-E-T-I-C. So it refers to music in a film that is music that's happening in the world of the mm. film. So if somebody's like listening to the radio in the film, that's diegetic. And, and I'm sorry, was that on Pariah? Yes. So in Pariah, there oh. is no score. All the music yeah. you hear is music that's happening in the world of the film. When she's going, when she's at the strip club and the Kia is playing, yeah. where she goes yeah. to a show and I'm the artist that's playing. So um, I lent some songs to the soundtrack and then I did a cover of the gossip for the end credits. Okay. That's how Dee and I met. Um, her cinematographer at the time, Bradford Young, yes. had done a film with my good friend James Spooner, a narrative feature after the documentary Afropunk that James had done. So mm -hmm. Bradford was very familiar with my music and a lot of my peers. And so he suggested me as one of the artists um, for music that she could use. And it ended up snowballing into me doing a cameo in the film, which was super wait, cool. Wait, wait, what? Okay, so so I have to just quickly say to the Sister Brunch family, if y'all have not, not only watched Pariah, but studied Pariah, this is a great, important, independent film on a young woman's um, coming out. Um, and it's powerful. It should have done way more. I mean, she should have started off her Oscar career with that one. <laughs> um, but what what do you play in the film? Um, myself. Myself. She comes oh, to a I show. Mean. So it was super cool. And I can do that. Like I can. And we played mm -hmm. live because I was just like, girl, if you want this to be real, I got to play. It can't. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I can fake someone else, but I can't fake myself. I just have to do it. So um, that it was a really good vibe. It was it was totally cool. So that started our familiarity with each other and um from there we we grew and she became familiar with my work you know my chamber ensemble some uh mm -hmm. music directing I was doing and eventually she said you know I, I'm working on this film on Bessie Smith and I want you to do music mm -hmm. and I wasn't really clear I thought maybe she wanted me to consult or something and then it was like no oh, I want you to write the score mm -hmm. and so it was an HBO film. Rachel Portman ended up doing the score. I think she won an Emmy for it, you know, legendary film score composer. It was one of those situations where I was like, you know, I don't have a reel. I haven't written a score before. You know, it's all good. Um, what I did know is that I was a composer and that I had so much belief and trust in Dee's vision that, you know, if, if she says tag, I'm it, then I'm it. 
And so the lesson we learned from Bessie was taken forward to Mudbound. And, you know, she's a very smart, strong and independent woman. And she made sure that she had say. So I was the composer for Mudbound. This is Sister Brunch, the podcast by and about Black women and gender expansive people thriving in entertainment and media. Stay tuned for more of our conversation with our guest, the melodious Brooklynite, Tamar Kali. We're back and so excited to continue this conversation with Tamar Kali. I want to know a little bit about your background and, and your influences in music, because I've read that punk rock and hardcore are a big part of those influences. And I also know you, I heard you mention Afropunk and this as, you know, I'm not, I'm not telling you something you don't know. This is not entirely common and usual for Black folks. So I'm wondering about, did you get pushback when that was the kind of music you were listening to? And also, was did you feel like the punk rock and hardcore communities were welcoming of you? I would um, suggest that all your listeners watch the documentary Afropunk. Um, yes. They might be familiar with the festival, which is its own kind of animal at this point. If you want to see the community that 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 whole cultural phenomenon was built on, you should watch Afropunk. I mean, we don't really have a presence in Afropunk current day, but that's the foundation. Um, yeah. So you should really check that out. You know, I mean, it's very common. I mean, for people who are part of marginalized communities, be it be it Black, be it woman, be it queer, whatever the case may be, there's a certain amount of pecking order and policing that happens because mm -hmm. you live in a world that does not affirm your humanity. Um, on a regular basis. So people are constantly wanting to pigeonhole you um, and be very reductive with your wholeness as a person. You know, like you can only do certain things. And, you know, especially here in America where the foundation of rock and roll, it was called race music in this country because, you know, the roots of rock and roll is we can't have our white children listen to this black music. So to, you know, fast forward and then have black folks tell you that you're not black. It would be funny if it wasn't so damn tragic. I am grateful that I had parents that were just growing up an authentic human being. I was an only child as well. So a lot of my world was of my own imagination. And so I, I got very comfortable in that practice. So, you know, I never had, I never really succumbed to peer pressure. That was not of interest to me. I, I'm grateful that I had um, parents that really encouraged my authenticity and my father had a range of music in the house you know and also i i'm of a certain age so i grew up in a time where there was a minute where like it wasn't like everybody had fm radio <laughs> and and even in the early parts of fm radio it was just like so eclectic i mean i'm you know i remember like hearing queen another one bites the dust on yes. um bls and toto and you know because it was just about music and what was good music and that was when back in the days you sold albums you didn't just sell yeah. a plastic disc it's like it was a different time you know yeah. and even when you think about early punk rock in new york and the whole danceteria scene where hip-hop and punk rock it's like they were all outsiders 
And um, so I have, that's my legacy. And I don't feel any ways about it. I just feel fortunate that I knew who came before me. So I didn't have to question myself. I just knew it was a matter of me finding my people. I love it. We're dropping gems for our listeners because Afropunk is also one of those documentaries that we get to see the ways that we don't have to be limited in who we are. And listen, we all know we still go face discrimination. That's part of our lives. But to be able to live freely the way the subjects in that film do is beautiful. So I was really glad to see that. And I was really glad to know that we have a Black woman whose music and composing has that context. Because, you know, like it or not, Tamar Kali, you're going to be pushing us into uh, new experiences, right? And new new music. Hopefully. I mean, you know, I'm <laughs> Oh, open. I'm telling you, you don't have a choice. I'm telling you, it is. For it me, just... <laughs> whoever has ears to hear and a heart to feel it, that's that's all it requires. It's, you know, that that's really the root of it. I, I'm I'm very much centered in that like the work is the way it's not all the extras the wrapping and the fixings Mm -hmm. it's it's the heart Mm -hmm. of the thing so you know um i while i was trained as a choral classical singer as a kid it's like i found my voice in punk rock and hardcore the reason i i showed promise as a young person you know especially being a second generation musician having the exposure and developing my ear with the oral traditions and, and, you know, my cultural musical traditions that are like oral tradition, you learn by ear, and then having access to instruments at home. But I decided pretty early that I wasn't going to do music because I still had that much societal pressure, like that it kind of felt like a fantasy, right? And then when it was clear after I did one year in a private university, should have went to a CUNY, but I had to get out the house. You know, I had I had very, my parents could be very overbearing, you know, raising up a child in 80s New York was a scary time and mm-hmm. I had to get up out the house. So I was like, you know, Brooklyn College is around the corner, but I, I got to get out of here. Um, so um, I just did one year in a private university and I came out and it was just hilarious because I kept talking about how I wasn't going to do music, but by second semester, I was like singing in coffee houses. It was clear that I couldn't get away from it, even though I was trying. And so then when that became established, like my dad was like my first manager. So he would like, he negotiated like my first session work. And, but then he was like taking me to Long Island to this shady agent that, you know, represented people for wedding brands. And I was like, well, this is surely the place that I will die. Um, (laughs) So, you know, yeah, exactly. But because he was trying to show me like, there is a way for you to support yourself with this. Mm -hmm. And, but, and I had to kind of be like, but I'm an artist, Poppy, I'm an artist, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we kind of split ways in that regard. And I found my way. And eventually they came to see what I was doing and had a lot of love and respect, you know, it was definitely a rough road. And I ended up, you know, coming from underneath their wings at that time, um, because I had to establish myself authentically as an artist. Um, I wasn't in it to just, you know, be a spectacle, or as a means for a check, like I had, I was compelled to express myself in very specific ways. Um, it was a matter of, of liberation and freedom for me. Oh, 
Love it, love it. So we've touched on this a lot, and it it really is meaningful that you had peers of Black folks as you were coming up, you know, creatives around you that you could kind of stay in relationship with and eventually work with. What is it like now, now that you are, your name is recognizable and you, you know, you go to fancy parties do and I? all those things. I know you do. I know you do. I will be calling you when I'm in New York to go to a fancy party with you. Um, But yeah, so, so what I'm assuming then, I mean, you grew up in New York, you had peers that were black and brown. And then I know from this industry, like kind of in some ways, the higher you get, the less color there is. And I'm wondering, what is it? What is it like for you now? It's so interesting because I'm a flower that bloomed in the shadows. You know what I'm saying? It's like I all all my development as an artist, my practice, it happened in the fringes. And so when the opportunity created its like presented itself, I had to move differently, but it wasn't against my conscience or my principles. It was just about some muscles that I needed to develop. I think that when you live such a high risk life as an independent artist in New York City and you're living like at or below the poverty line, it can be really hard to grid, you know what I mean? Like and cover the basics, food and shelter. So you're not always willing to take risks. And so what the things that shifted for me was when the mud bounce situation came about and I saw the energy that was pointed at this project, I understood that I had to strike when the iron was hot. And that that was the moment where I came out of my comfort zone. And that was the moment where I found myself in unfamiliar territory. But it was just in that moment to create that transition. I still live in a, a world that, you know, if we're honest about it, it's just highly curated because I've lived, I've had this 20 plus career as an independent artist, you know, I'm still self-managed. I have an agent for film and TV and I have like a rep who negotiates like commissioning and classical works deals, but I'm still, you know, I'm the source of everything that I'm doing. And so my life pretty much looks the same. It's the same cast. There's some new faces and now you know, I'm not in landlord tenant court every other month or, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just talking real talk, yes. you know, yes. Um, yes. you know, and, and I know, you know, and I'm, I'm eating regularly and, you know, I'm not, I'm not stressed. And I tell people, you know, it's like you pay your dues so that you could bust your behind to, mm. to, to manifest and create the body of the work so that you can then rest on your laurels. So I'm in the thick of it. I'm just trying to leave behind a legacy in my work so I can get to a point where I can say, okay, let me relax a little bit. But, 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 but you know, it, it's on and, and cracking right now. That's, that's where I'm at. So parties, not so much. I can clean up real good when I get ready, but most of the time I'm really trying to do this work. I'm trying to get it done because I am still, my practice is very much that of an independent artist. Hi, it's Fanshin, and you're listening to Sister Brunch. We'll be right back. And during this really quick music break, go ahead and follow us on Twitter. If you're not already, we're at Sister Brunch and on Instagram at Sister Brunch Podcast. This is Tamar Kali, and you're listening to Sister Brunch. 
So this leads to a question that we always like to ask guests. If you're uncomfortable with it, we understand, but we want to give our listeners a sense of what kind of the salary ranges are for a composer and or musician, everything kind of what should they expect to know? <laughs> See, this is so hard because, of course, the first film I did, haha, you know what I mean? Like I was up there with some chewing gum, a toothpick, <laughs> you know, some dental floss, yes. you know, like straight up and had to yeah. make it work. And so what changed for me is so... This first things first. I'm going to talk more about the steps than telling you about numbers. Okay, so no the first thing was that was the moment where we there was a shoot that we were going to do for Mudbound. I had to go to L.A. for it. And I felt the energy and I was like, OK, if I just let them fly me in and out for the shoot, I'm a fool. I'm standing on something. There's energy here. It's powerful. I need to make the transition into trying to develop a team for myself. My spouse at the time was in grad school getting their MSW. So when I tell you, you know what I'm saying? Like it was lean, lean, you know, where we were living on my artist's salary and he was doing some part-time stuff. So it was a scary time. So I had to have this faith where I was like, okay, um, let me see. I got to get out there and I need to do some networking. So, um, and what the beautiful thing about community is that there is reciprocation. When you have good people in your life that you have cared for, they will care for you. So my LA people came through. I had a place to rest my head. So I was like, okay, I'm going to spend a week. And then closed mouth, don't get fed. I had to like really learn how to ask. And that was a major thing for me. Um, for a lot of us, who have grown up working class or have people with Southern roots, it, you're so fearful. You're always worried about being in hock to someone, if not financially, spiritually, or emotionally. And so it can be very difficult to ask. So one of the first things I did, people who had showed interest in my work, and particularly this score, I gave them a call. Hey, I'm coming to LA. Is there anyone I should meet? You know, I had to, you have to find the language that works for yourself. You might not be able to say it like somebody else. But what I learned I could say was, hey, is there anyone you think I should meet? Like, and that opened up the door. Let me give you a list. Email all my agent friends and mm -hmm. see if they can get a meeting with you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, so that's, yep. it started there. Then I was able to start with an agent. I found someone who was bright eyed, bushy tail. They felt really earnest and there was an interest and a desire there. Like, that's important. Yes. So started there. And then it was like, well, you're, you're going to need a publicist if you want people to know about this work. And then that gets tricky because, you know, that whole take money to make money. And it's really frightening. Say, expensive. Like what, what, once you're at that level, they and it's usually a retainer, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I have yeah. been taken in the past. So I was real sore oh, wow. about it. But okay. then I realized, OK, this this risk is worth taking, you know? Yep. And I had yep. to just believe in myself above all else. So I did what I needed to do to get the funding, you know? So from there, it was like, and the, and the part of when you know when to throw something on it, it can't just be for anything. It, it's not an all the time yes. type of scenario, but I saw the energy, the momentum, the impetus and the importance of this film. I was like, this is the one, okay. And this is gonna open doors. So five days in LA came back with the agent. 
and a publicist. Yes. Okay. Now you're in the position of like negotiating your salary a little bit, unlike before where, you know, you get that first thing and you're like, I'll do it. Or with friends, you're like, you know, whatever you can pay me, I'm going to do this. Guess what? Let me show you how I negotiate. I don't. My agent does. Let me stop. But seriously, seriously, though, no, because let me tell you something. I am from Brooklyn and I have an edge when it's time. But when it comes to this work that I love to do and I'm so blessed to do, I am a bleeding heart. I'm not saying that I fall for the, oh, for promotion. Like, I know that because I got to eat. I live in New York City. The -hmm. thing is, though, that I realize that my mastery is my craft and an agent's mastery is their craft. That was the most Mm -hmm. important thing. Like, this year has been a really heavy year because a lot of things have spoke to my heart. But boundaries are important. Um, and yeah. that's why it's so important to have representation because mm-hmm. my agent, she gets it done. This is, she lives yeah. every morning is a good day for her to squeeze a lemon, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that's the hard conversation. When you're a creative, you don't want to have to be having the conversations about money, but you do need someone to be having that conversation. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And yeah. you need somebody yeah. who, who is going to throw that ball places you never dreamed of. I still have fear attached. And that's why I have to be like, mind your business. Do you know what I mean? Like, because- yeah, She's not afraid. She knows, she believes in you. So you go ahead and, and you keep making your work and you're, you know, creating. Some of us who are really addicted to controlling everything, you should always be apprised and aware. You can never tap out on your existence and your bottom line, of course. But, um, you. There are things that someone else is better at than I am. And I, of course, want them on my team and give them the space to do what they need to do. Like, and that's, that's the, the most important thing. You need to be able to establish that they, they're better at it than you. I love it. You, you, you met our whole Sister Brunch team when we first came on. And uh, this is the same thing. We're all like, you know what? Each one of us has a strength. And we all have this goal of, you know, uplifting Black women in the industry, but each one of us can kind of come together as a team for exactly those reasons. Now we're just trying to, you know, we're trying to up the money. So maybe we need an agent too. So we'll work on that. Can you tell us about mentors that you have? And then also included in that, especially if they're composer mentors, musician mentors, what makes a talented composer? I, I don't particularly feel qualified to answer that per se, because and so this is part well, wait, of it. You and I know people are people are going to think like, oh, this she's so full. Of, but no, seriously, like I think part of why I can survive and not lose my mind is to understand that it's all subjective. And that's why mm. I stay in the space of just trying to create from my heart and people who can connect to that, we're good. Of course, certain people have certain aesthetic likes and there are things that are in the canon that we say this is, you know, an example of amazing composition, you know, and at the same time, that could be so and it might not move everybody. So I feel like in terms of mentorship, what has been striking to me and what I have learned from is people who have been able to maintain their unique artistic voice and be authentic and make that the means, like, and and be able to support themselves through it. 
Do you get what I mean? And I think that that's of most importance. And I'm not talking about putting the value on material or money. Mm-hmm. Because, and some people, they hear that and they think extreme. I'm not, I'm not talking an extreme. I'm talking sensible, rational, logical, moderate. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. anyone who's been able to have their dream, keep it, and get it to a place where it worked for them. Yeah. That's the type of mentorship that I'm interested in. Does that make sense? Because everybody well, needs sense. different things. I don't need every single job out there. I want the jobs that are for me, that are coming to me, that are aligned with with what I'm trying to do, that resonate with me, right? And it's like, because I have this whole practice as an independent artist. I didn't go through conservatory. You know, I didn't go through university. So I never developed the muscle of write anything, any style, anytime for anyone. My art mm. is so connected to my heart. So I'm looking at people who have that type of path and are able to support themselves, create a sustainable, long-lasting practice, and leave a legacy. Like, those are mentors to me. So you know you're going to be flooded on your socials with folks looking for you to be their mentor. (laughs) And I mean, it's just about showing up, you know? Like, people Mm -hmm. I don't know, watching how they move. If that gave me some knowledge and allowed me to understand a deeper truth about myself, then, you know, that's that's a way that you mentor. You know, I feel very fortunate to be in New York City where there's so many artists all around you. And you know what I'm saying? From Toshiwika, Michelle and Ocello, um, you know, Vernon Reed, like, you know, just being able to just be in a space and see all these folks and be around them and and wax poetic with them and build friendships. Like, you know, I I feel very lucky in that regard. All right, Tamar Kali, you are sitting down to an amazing sister brunch with a young Tamar Kali. What are you eating? What are you drinking? And what do you tell her? If it's a young Tamar Kali, then we're at Caravan of Dreams on East 6th Street having... A mixed baby greens salad and a great tofu scramble with some tempeh bacon. Yes, to the vegans. <laughs> this is the 90s. And we're going to end with an amazing raw mango pie. I'm telling her to continue to trust her gut that she is loved and protected. And, you know, always keep it squeaky. I think that I don't have no regrets, but if I would change anything, it would just be to be more mindful of aligning my words with my actions sooner. You know, I mean, you're not going to be perfect, but to have that as like a focus, you know, like the four agreements, you know, know? Mm -hmm. like to, to, if I could have started that practice in my twenties, I'm just curious because I really have no regrets. But curious as to how things may have shifted or looked if I had that seed of wisdom and was was starting to exemplify that type of practice at a younger age. Mm. Thank you so much to Markali. It's been wonderful to have you on. We love all that you do. We are here to support. We'll um, make sure that we share all the ways that our listeners can can support you also on social media, on projects that you have coming up. We're just honored to have you on. It was a pleasure. 
thank you so much. This is my moment of calm and a sea of a whole lot today. Thanks so much for listening to Sister Brunch, the podcast that brings you the stories of Black women breaking barriers and bringing joy to the entertainment and media industries. Our mission at Sister Brunch is to highlight, celebrate, and uplift artists and change makers, while also in our small way, helping to change the systems that marginalize us. As part of this mission, we're taking action to make our guest list more inclusive of Black folks of marginalized genders. If you would like to share your thoughts or suggestions or help support us in this area, please send us an email to sisterbrunchpodcast at gmail.com. This is our fourth season of Sister Brunch. You can read the transcript of this show and listen to all our previous episodes at sisterbrunch.com. We appreciate your support by subscribing to our podcast, leaving us a great review, and sharing it with others. You can also follow and interact with us on Instagram at Sister Brunch Podcast. And you can support the Sister Brunch Podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, both, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Sister Brunch is brought to you by Trujillo Productions. Our senior producer is Sonata Lee Narciss. Our co-producer is Brittany Turner. Our associate producers are Farida Abdul-Wahab and Mimi Slater. Our executive producers are Christabel Nsiabwadi and Anya Adams. We acknowledge that the land we record our podcast on is the original land of the Tongva and Chumash people. Can't wait to see you next time. Take care, everyone. Thank you.